Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the latest in our special episodes of Battle Walks. This is Matt McLaughlin and I've got something a little bit different for you this week as we continue this range of special episodes exploring aspects of battlefields and battlefield history. This one is an interview not conducted by me, but an interview of me. This is conducted by a mate of mine, Adam Bloom, who has his own podcast called True Blue History. And if you're interested in Australian military history, I suggest you check it out. But Adam recently interviewed me for that podcast about my new book, The Cowra Breakout. Now, if you're overseas, you probably haven't heard of Cowra or The Cowra Breakout. It was the mass escape of Japanese prisoners from a prisoner of war camp in the town of Cowra in New South Wales in 1944. So I've just completed a book about it. It's going to be published next year in August. Uh, so look out for that one. But Adam recently interviewed me about the book for his podcast, True Blue History. So I thought I'd bring you this because Pete Smith and I are going to do a walk around Cowra, a battle walk episode around Cowra in the coming months. And I thought this was a good little preemptor of that to tell you a bit about the Cowra story and why it was so important in World War II history. So I hope you enjoy this. We've got a couple more special episodes coming up before we take our Christmas break and then back with new and exciting Battle Walks in the new year. But please enjoy this episode of Battle Walks as we talk about the Cowra breakout. G'day. Welcome to True Blue History. I'm Adam Bloom. Today's special guest is Matt McLaughlin, owner of Matt McLaughlin Battlefield Tours. And he has joined us today to talk about his new book. Aside from the Japanese bombing of Darwin between 1942 and 1943 and the Japanese midget submarine attack on Sydney Harbour in May and June 1942, there is a less well-known event that occurred between Japanese and Australian troops on Australian soil in 1944, and that is the subject of your new book, The Cower Breakout. Hi, Matt. 
Thanks for joining us on the show. G'day, Adam. Good to be here, mate. No, it's an honour and a privilege to have you back on the show. So, Matt, what sparked your interest in the Cowra breakout? Well, I um, grew up in West Wylong in regional New South Wales, which is about an hour down the road from Cowra. Um, yeah, and I grew up as a kid with my grandparents talking about it. They talked about it. Was, it was in the district. It was a well-known story in the sort of the that sort of region of the of, of the bush. And so I grew up with my grandparents talking about it. My grandfather told me how he used to he used to deliver newspapers over to the to the camp and used to drive through the camp and how bloody scary the Japs were in the camp. And um, my grandmother told me that after the breakout, when they moved the prisoners to Hay Camp, which is part of the story we'll get into, um, but the trucks came through West Wylong, and so she the whole town came out to see these Japanese prisoners being transported through the town and. She, I remember growing up with her telling me that she was surprised how tall they were because she'd heard all the propaganda about the sort of the, the midget little sort of buck-toothed yellow Japanese, you know, he's coming south kind of, the, that propaganda image of the small Japanese was one thing we pushed really hard. The Aussies are big, brawny Anzacs and the Japanese are these small little soldiers. So she told me how tall they were when they came through. She was surprised. They were just ordinary men, she said. So it's funny, the perception they had in the bush. But it, So I grew up with the story, and then in 84, I think it was, when the Cowra Breakout miniseries came out, I watched that because it was part of my upbringing, and then that got me interested in it as well, and so my dad took me over to the camp. and Yeah, so it's just been part of my upbringing and a story I've known really well for a long time, and it's a great privilege that now I've actually gotten to write a book about it, and there's so many facets of the story that I didn't even understand myself. So it's great that I've now gotten to write this book about it and tell the whole story. So unlike the First World War, when majority of the fighting was not located near Australian shores, what factors influenced the decision that prisoners of war would be interned on Australian soil and who were the key figures responsible for this decision? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting story of warfare that we don't often follow is what happened to all these prisoners that we captured. And it started in the First World War as well. There were lots of camps. They called them, ironically, they called them concentration camps uh, in the First World War. In the Boer War, they established camps for Boers that they captured in South Africa. So in Australia, there were internment camps. So there's two facets to it. I mean, it's a whole, it's probably a whole separate podcast, but the discussion of what we did to citizens and prisoners of war during the two world wars, but there's two facets of it. There's civilian internees, so people we felt were a security risk within Australia were locked up in camps, and prisoners of war, enemy soldiers captured on the battlefield. So it was always a requirement in both world wars. It was a requirement... You know, it's obviously controversial, the idea of blocking up civilians in your own country, but um, it was felt in both wars that this was an important thing. Um, and the focusing on the Second World War, which we're talking about with Cowra, uh, it all started in 1941 when we were fighting in North Africa and capturing lots of Italians. And so the question was, what are we going to do with all these prisoners of war? And they decided it was our responsibility to look after them to the terms of the Geneva Convention. Um, and so we said, well, we'll set up camps in Australia. And there was the, quite a few camps. There were seven or eight camps that were set up in Australia during the Second World War. And obviously this is before the war with Japan. So um, they were mostly Italians that were being sent back in their thousands because they were captured in their thousands in North Africa and set up in camps 
all around Australia. So it was a government decision. It was an army decision uh, because they had to do something with all these prisoners they were taking in the in the, uh, in the in North Africa campaign. So apart from the attack on Sydney Harbour, Australian and Japanese troops were fighting in and to the north of Australia. Why was a small country town in, in New South Wales, about 4,282 kilometres, that's about 2,661 miles by road, considered the ideal site for the camp? And I might add... It would have taken a long time to get to that camp because the roads aren't what they are today. Why was Cowra chosen? It's a good question. Um, there, there's a couple of reasons for it. There were camps in the north of Australia. There were camps in Queensland. There were camps all over Australia, Western Australia. They had they had camps everywhere. Um, but Cowra was considered ideal because the the roads were bad, but there were very good rail links. The rail system was probably better than it is today. Um, so it wasn't that difficult to transport large groups of people. They just needed space. They needed somewhere where they could contain people once they were in australia it wasn't that big a deal to move them in, in a day or two from from the north down to cowra cowra was easily accessible from sydney which was important it was only about it's only about 400 k's inland from sydney easily accessible by road and rail to sydney um but also there was a big army training camp there which is a central part of the story of the cowra breakout was that about there's a big camp with about four thousand recruits training there so they felt that that was very good security, obviously, to have lots of soldiers in the area. Um, but it was part of the philosophy, the idea that you could put people in the middle of nowhere. That, And I talk about in the book that the, the philosophical concept was that if you took a man who had been a military man and had been fighting on a battlefield, he was captured and then stripped of all his weapons, his uniform was removed, and he was put in a prisoner's outfit, and then you sent him to a place that was in literally the middle of nowhere that was how you broke his fighting spirit. He would just see that he was out of the war. He, you know, he, was, he was thousands of miles from his own troops. He was thousands of miles from the battlefield. He wasn't in a uniform anymore. He was just out in the middle of nowhere doing nothing. And the concept was he would now be, in no uncertain terms, he would understand that he was now out of the war and therefore wouldn't pose a risk of you know, rising up again and causing any trouble. Obviously, the Cara breakout demonstrates that uh, it didn't quite work in practice, but it certainly was the theory. So what was the town's population of Cara roughly at the time of the breakout, and what was the town's feelings for POWs being housed in Cara? Yeah, it's an interesting part of the story. It's about 3,000 people in Cara, so it was a very sleepy little country town. So you imagine there's 4,000 recruits at the training camp, at the army training camp, and the population of the town was only 3,000. So there's a lot more soldiers in the area than there were civilians. Um, there's really two parts to the story. The camp was originally built for Italians captured in North Africa, and the Italians were very pliant prisoners. They had not been very good soldiers. They weren't. A lot of them were conscripts who weren't particularly interested in the war. When they arrived, they were very happy to be out of the war. You know, they'd surrendered in their tens of thousands in North Africa. They they weren't interested in fighting to the death. And so they were sent to Cowra. So first the camp was just set up for Italians. And the Italians were an interesting mob. They were, a lot of them were from rural areas. They, um, they worked on local farms. They didn't try to escape. They, you know, they were, it was always comical the way the Italians acted as prisoners. And so, yeah, they worked on local farms. They had occasional dalliances with farmers' wives and daughters. They, you know, they... Um, the Italians, the story I love most about the Italians is one day they went out on a working party on a truck and when they came back late in the evening, the truck threw a tyre and by the time the Italians had changed the tyre and gotten back to camp, completely unguarded, they didn't go out with Australian guards, it was just the Italian prisoners on their own on a truck. By the time they got back to the camp, um, it was after dark and the camp was all locked down for the night and they had to bang on the gates to be let back into the camp. 
So the Italians were a total different breed of um, of prisoners. Um, but then, of course, in 1942, when the war in the Pacific started, Japanese prisoners started to arrive, and these were a totally different breed of prisoners to the to the compliant, relaxed Italians. The Japanese were fanatical. They did not want to be captured. Um, they did not want to be imprisoned. And then there's this whole concept, which is the driving force behind the Cara breakout, which was the concept of erasing the shame that they felt of being prisoners. So the, the, the Japanese were a whole different story. So was there animosity between the Italians and the Japanese when they started to come into the camp? Or were they did they get along with each other? Yeah, they got them pretty well because they were they were all in it together. The Japanese didn't quite understand the Italians, why they were so relaxed and, and happy to be there. Um, and the Italians thought the Japanese were all very fanatical. But they were forced together. They were on the same side at that stage. They were on the same side of the war, so they were comrades in arms. Um, and they used to do. They used to. They were kept in separate compounds in the camp, so they didn't mix together. But they communicated where they could. So they'd often pass food and cigarettes and things through the fence. They, you know, they talk in whatever sign language and bits of broken English they could come up with. So the Italians and the Japanese in general got on fairly well. Um, but the Japanese thought the Italians were very strange and couldn't understand why they were happy to be imprisoned, and the Italians thought the Japanese were quite fanatical. So they didn't have a lot in common except for the fact that they all were prisoners, um, but they generally made the best of it. So by 1944, what were Australia's major fears regarding the Japanese Imperial Army? Wow, good question. Um by 1944, it was a very different war to 1942. 1942 was the year that Australia felt most threatened and it looked like the Japanese were unstoppable. By 1944, that wasn't the case. The, the Japanese were being pushed back at every level. So the, the turning point, the high tide point for the Japanese in the Pacific was Guadalcanal. So that campaign ran from August 1942 to February 1943. Um, New Guinea was obviously going on at the same time and indeed went on for the rest of the war. Um, but the real turning point in terms of the battle, you know, if we want to talk about the battle that saved Australia, it was actually not New Guinea, it was Guadalcanal. Um, because Guadalcanal was Japan's attempt to cut Australia off from America. Guadalcanal was where the Japanese knew was the, their make or break battle. And so Guadalcanal went from August 42 to February 43. Um, and that was the real high point for the Japanese. Once the Japanese were defeated at Guadalcanal, that was as far south as they got in the Pacific. And once they were defeated, every step they took was a backward step towards Tokyo. So by 1944, the fighting was very severe in the Pacific, but everyone knew how the war was going to end now. It's just a question of pushing the Japanese back and back. And there was all sorts of politics involved with the Americans sidelining the Australians a little bit. The Australians felt that they were getting... They weren't getting part of the main action. The Australians always thought they'd be at the forefront. The Americans were sidelining us a little bit because the Americans wanted to be doing it all themselves. So um, it was a, an interesting time in terms of the war. But I think by 1944, everyone knew how the war was going to end and it was only going to end one way. And that was a, a catastrophic Japanese defeat. So the writing was really on the wall by 44. So once the decision had been made to construct a camp, what were the main rules set by the Geneva Convention that POW camps had to abide by? Well, it's a really interesting one when it comes to a Japanese prisoner of war camp because the Geneva Convention, in the sense that we know it now as it relates to prisoners of war, wasn't put in place until after the Second World War. So 1949 was the amendments that we now abide by in terms of the treatments of prisoners of war. There were some... There were some rules put in place during the Second World War. And in 1942, the, okay, so here's the base, without getting too complicated, here's the basis for how the Japanese were treated in the camp. In 1942, Germany and Britain signed an agreement 
about how prisoners should be treated in their camps and establishing rules such as if a prisoner was killed or wounded, they would hold an inquest to find out what had happened and charges could be laid against guards and prisoners. And so they had quite a strict set of rules, and that was what the 1949 Geneva Convention was based on. Um, So that was what was in place. Japan was not a signatory to that. Japan had not signed up to the Geneva Convention, and Japan had not obviously agreed to this arrangement because it was between Britain and Germany. Um, the interesting, the reason is why did Japan not sign up to it? Well, there's a couple of really interesting reasons. Firstly, the Japanese felt that if they... The Japanese felt the, the most fundamental thing to say is the Japanese stressed beyond all else that you should not get captured, you should commit suicide. And the Japanese believed that no Japanese would ever surrender, that they'd all commit suicide at that when that moment came. So... Officially, Japan said, why would we sign up to a convention about the treatment of prisoners where we will have to agree to look after all the prisoners that we capture, but you won't be holding any prisoners in your camp because there will be no Japanese prisoners. So that would be unfair, the burden on us to have to feed and clothe and all the prisoners from you soft Western allies when there won't be any Japanese prisoners. That's a bit unfair. And also, they didn't want to sign up to conventions that meant that they had to treat prisoners better effectively than they would treat their own soldiers because they were pretty harsh on their own soldiers in terms of food and equipment and training. And signing up to the to the rules as they related to the Geneva Convention in 1942 would have meant that the prisoners were better looked after than Japanese soldiers. So Japan was never a signatory to all of these rules and regulations and all these conventions, but at the same time, the Allies, to tr- mostly to try and safeguard the well-being of Allied prisoners in Japanese hands, agreed that they would treat Japanese prisoners under the terms that they'd agreed to under the original Geneva Convention and the terms they'd agreed to for the treatment of German prisoners. So the Japanese were fairly well looked after, even though they hadn't signed up to any of those agreements. That's a long-winded answer, <laughs> but it's a complicated part of the story. So basically, the, the, the simple explanation is that the Japanese, we agreed to give the Japanese terms that they absolutely did not agree to reciprocate with with Allied prisoners. It's just something I've thought of, Matt, and would you feel that there's some animosity from, it goes back to the First World War, when the signing of the treaty in 1918, where Japan didn't get the Pacific, do you still feel that there was some animosity from those days, or is that a bit of a trying to stretch the bow a little bit too far? It's all part of the same story. I don't think there was any direct animosity, because obviously Japan... So, yes, Japan was on our side during the First World War and there was some backwards and forwards at Versailles about where the German colonies in the Pacific would go and Japan wanted them. And thank God that Billy Hughes, our Prime Minister, lobbied so hard for them to go to Australia. Otherwise, several colonies in the Pacific would have already been Japanese at the outbreak of the Second World War, which would have been a disaster for the Allied cause. So, yes, that was all in the background. Um, And it's all part of the story, but it's part of the story in the same way that the First World War and the Second World War are effectively two chapters of the same story. That, yeah, that was part of the backstory of Japan, but by the time that this was an issue, by 1942, when Japan was marauding through Asia, um, there were many other things going on, like the bombing of Pearl Harbor, for example, that were, you know, justifiably annoying the, the Allies. So, yeah, it's all part of the backstory, but there wasn't a direct link to what was happening in 1942. So can you tell us about the camp itself? Where was it located in relation to the town and how big was it? And what was it, its layout like? And just explain it to us. Explain it, what the camp was. Yeah, okay. Well, it was called um, Number 12 Prisoner of War Group was the official name for the camp. It was 1941 when they decided they were going to build a camp in Cowra. It's only a couple of kilometres outside town and about three kilometres north of the army training camp, the big army training camp that was already there. Um, 
so basically, it was about 100 acres, the whole site. So it's a pretty big area. It's a big area. It was split into four compounds. That's what we have to understand. So it was loosely circular. If you look at it on a, an aerial, uh, if you look at a map of it or an aerial photo, it looks circular. It actually wasn't. There were the, the sides were straight, but they, they went in such a shape that it looked roughly circular, divided into four equal-sized compounds, and each compound could hold about 1,000 men. So A, B, C, and D compounds were the four compounds. Um, so... Now, I always get, from memory, I always get this right. So it was A, B, C, D. So A and C held the Italian prisoners. So the top left and the bottom right were for Italian prisoners, about 1,000 each, about 2,000 Italians in the camp. The bottom left one, the, the southwest one, was D camp, and it held a bit of a mix. It held Japanese officers that had been separated from their men, uh, Formosans, so Taiwanese as they were, um, Koreans and Indonesians that were labourers that had been seconded into the Japanese forces, but they recognised were not as, you know, not as fanatical fighters as the Japanese themselves, but still loosely enemies. So you had this sort of mixed bag and D compound. The one we're most interested in is the top right one, the northeast one, which was B compound. And B compound held the Japanese enlisted men and their non-commissioned officers, so the, the corporals and the sergeants. And there was it was designed to hold about 500 men. So, so there's the four compounds, and we can talk more about them, but they're all basically the same. There was a big strip down the middle called Broadway, which separated the compounds, and a strip that went left to right, which they called No Man's Land. So that separated the four compounds. The one we're interested in is B compound, the one in the top right corner that held the Japanese enlisted men. It was designed to hold about 500 in all these huts. Um, by the time of the Cara breakout in August 1944, there was 1,104 Japanese in the camp. So what was happening was by that stage, Japan was just suffering defeat after defeat after defeat. And obviously, the more they were defeated, the more men were being captured. And so the numbers by 1944 were starting to absolutely balloon and there was nowhere to put them. So they kept jamming more and more men into the camp. And all of these men, of course, desperate not to have been captured, experiencing great shame that they hadn't committed suicide were it's a bit of a, a a troublesome mix in the camp so yeah so at the time of the breakout 1104 japanese were held in b compound way too many so what did a normal day look like at the camp uh again very different for the italians it meant that they would be baking they would be uh, working on gardens they would be singing concerts and a lot of them would be out working on local farms so they had a very australia saw this as a great opportunity particularly after the in 1943 when the italian government fell when the fascist government fell the Italians then sw- swapped sides, joined the Allied cause, and then it was seen, even though they didn't let the prisoners out, it was still seen as a great free workforce, effectively, for Australia. So the Italians were sent to districts, to, to towns all over New South Wales, were sent out to work and live with farmers and work on the farms and chop wood and tend the crops, and, and they did that effectively unsupervised. So the, the Italians became effectively a huge free labour force for Australia. So the Italian experience was very different from the Japanese. Japanese fanatical, um, seething with anger and hatred at themselves. One thing I think we should probably talk about is the the Japanese mentality a little bit, if you want to talk about that now, because it reflects how they acted. So the Japanese, it's a very complicated story that I go into in quite a bit of detail in the book, but the, the summary is that the Japanese lived by the Field Service Code. The Field Service Code said, effectively it said don't leave in death the shame of having been captured in life. It didn't actually tell Japanese they had to commit suicide instead of being captured, but that's how they interpreted it. And the idea was Japanese will not let themselves be captured. It's very shameful. It, it harks back to the, the, the samurai, experience that a samurai 
was for life was tied to his master and therefore if his master was defeated in battle, the samurai would now have a new master and that would be too shameful so he would commit ritual suicide. The concept of ritual suicide to erase shame was very well entrenched in the Japanese and not so, we talk about suicide today as sort of a, a failing, you know, like, oh, you couldn't cope so someone committed suicide. I mean, it's horrible to say, but this is how we view suicide today. That is not what the Japanese saw it as. They saw it was a very courageous and brave decision to end your life instead of be subjugated or, or captured. So for the Japanese who were captured... It was this incredibly strange experience for them. They'd never expected to be captured. They were never trained to, you know, allies were trained in what to do if you get captured. The Japanese were not. Um, They knew that when a Japanese man was captured, the Japanese authorities would inform his family he'd been killed in action because the Japanese said, well, he he obviously hasn't been captured. He's missing from the battlefield, so he must have committed suicide. So his family would be informed that he'd been killed. So they would have a funeral service. They'd build a, a gravestone for him and the family would mourn their dead son. So there was a great emphasis placed on family and community that the Japanese soldier could never go home after. Often when a, when, there was, when a Japanese soldier would go off to the front, there would be a big celebration, a big commemoration in his town. That was not to send him off for well wishes for when you get back from the war eventually. That was to commemorate his decision to die for the empire. So they were sending him off knowing he wasn't coming back. So this is the background of every Japanese soldier who was going off and fighting. Now, all of a sudden, they found themselves captured. And that was usually because often the army guys were already wounded or sick and they couldn't defend themselves. So they'd wake up on a stretcher in a hospital. Often, not always, but often that was the case. Or the other one that was really interesting facet when I was writing the book, the army and navy, uh, sorry, the air force and navy guys. Uh, so these guys were, there was no hope of them not being captured if you were in a plane that was shot down over Darwin, for example, or if you were in a ship that was sunk in the middle of the Coral Sea. There was no suggestion that you would not be captured. So the Japanese felt that the Japanese that, that were captured had been done so reluctantly, and now they found themselves in a situation they had never thought they would be in. They were they, they called themselves ghosts because they said, we can never go back to Japan because our families think we're already dead. As far as our families are concerned, we are dead, so we can't just turn up and tell them we're not. Then they'll say, where have you been? And we'll say we got captured, and then they would shun us. We, our families and communities would not let us come back. Um, but we didn't meet the honourable death we were supposed to on the battlefield. So this is the core of the Japanese feeling. So it goes well beyond. We use the word shame at being captured. It's well beyond that. They said, we are ghosts. We are already dead, but for some reason, we're not dead. And so imagine the the, lo- the self-loathing, the angst. Oh, we should have killed ourselves on the battlefield. We should have died honorably like all our comrades. We can never go back to Japan. Our families will turn their backs on us if we ever turn up. What are we going to do? And so for most of them, they just said, I don't know. I'm not going to think about it right now, but I have to do something eventually. I can never go back to Japan. I can't stay here. Eventually, I'll have to deal with this. I'll have to do something eventually. That was the Japanese mindset. So as you can see, this is all starting to build up to what are we going to do? We have to do something. What is it going to be? We can't just sit here and wait out the war. So the Japanese, with that attitude, they didn't go on work parties. They were kept inside the compound. Um, They did stuff for recreation. They built ornamental gardens. They grew vegetables. uh, And they played a lot of baseball. They did a lot of baseball and sumo wrestling. The Australians, trying to be nice to the Japanese, completely misunderstanding the mindset, thought that the Japanese will be happy if we give them things to do, if we look after them well, we'll keep them happy because no, an Australian prisoner would be the same. As long as he was well-fed and had somewhere warm to sleep and could entertain himself, he wouldn't cause any trouble. So they thought the Japanese would be the same. So they let them build baseball fields. They let them do sumo wrestling. They built a theatre for them. The Japanese would put on plays um, rather foolishly as part of the baseball. They gave them lots of baseball bats, which would come back to haunt them later on. 
and they just tried to look after them as best they could. They gave them the same rations as the guards in the camp, which was more than 3,000 calories a day they were given. They gave them fresh cow or lamb, which is still considered, you know, cow or lamb is still considered the best in Australia. They gave them fresh fish that they were so fresh they could make sashimi. They gave them vegetables. They gave them all this fresh food. They could grow their own vegetables. So the Australians misunderstood and thought, we're going to just make them happy and comfortable and they won't cause a problem. And that was obviously completely misunderstanding the, the mindset of what was going on in the camp. So when they were actually captured, did they, to avoid shame on their families, they wouldn't give their real names, would they? They'd, they'd give false names so it wouldn't bring shame on their family? Yeah, exactly right. They gave false names. Most of the key characters that we talk about in the, in the story of the Cara breakout used false names. Um, as part of the rules, they were allowed to contact their families and regularly they were allowed to send telegrams back home to tell their families that they were safe and well and what was going on. And the Italians did it lots. Uh, the Italians were constantly contacting their family, writing letters. The Italians were writing full letters to their families, explaining what was going on, and then receiving replies from Italy. Um, Australians as well. Some, to some extent, we saw the same thing. Particularly Australians in German prisoner of war camps corresponded via the Red Cross with their families, so their families knew they were in, they were prisoners and kept they were kept updated about their welfare. Um, the Japanese, I could not find a single example of a Japanese prisoner writing back to their family to tell their family was alive. I am prepared to say, it seems unbelievable, I am prepared to say that of the 1,104 Japanese in that camp, not a single one of them told their family that they were alive, um, which seems unbelievable. There must have been one or two who didn't care about the whole shame thing. I'm just going to write to mum and tell her I'm alive and well. I cannot find a single example. I think I'm prepared to go on the record and say, without exception, they did not tell their families that they were in prison it's extraordinary wow what was the relationship like between the guards and the pow's great question uh again the italians a different story but we're talking about the japanese the, the australians and the italians got them very very well but we're focused on the japanese um it depends it was a mixed bag there were some japanese again you're talking about 1104 people so they're all going to be different personalities they share some commonalities but you're going to have different personalities some of them were extremely fanatical and were very difficult to get on with, very recalcitrant prisoners that caused trouble at every opportunity. There was a big group in the middle, and I always say this, I always say there's probably three groups. So there's the fanatics that were impossible to get on with, caused trouble whenever they could, rebellious, caused trouble. A big group in the middle who were just fence-sitters. They were just like, well, here we are. We're going to have to eventually, or we'll have to deal with this issue of us being prisoners, but we're not that worried about it. They just sort of did what they were told, got on with life, not too difficult. There was a group of Japanese that were just by their nature, they were sociable, friendly, likeable people. And there's some notable examples of, of uh, particularly the main person that we talk about is a guy called uh, Hajime Toishima, who was a zero pilot that was captured in the first raid on Darwin. He's a central character in the whole story. Uh, he became, he gave the false name of uh, Tadeo Manami, was the name he went by in the camp. And Manami is often seen as the ringleader and this sort of brooding fanatical character he's sort of he's really depicted as the ultimate japanese fanatic my research indicated that wasn't the case he was a very intelligent charming person and he seemed to be liked well liked by the japanese and the australians i saw a, a note from an australian interpreter who dealt with manami a lot and he said i really liked him he was a really good bloke uh, manami also before he was sent to Cowra, was actually imprisoned in Melbourne, just on his own at uh, Victoria Barracks in Melbourne. And he formed a really close friendship in the month that he was there with an Australian guard called Sam Shallard. And they spent lots of time, Sam Shallard taught him English and they used to hang out together and they'd read together and they'd play badminton and they actually formed a solid friendship. And 
in later years when Shallard found out that Manami had been so involved in the Cara breakout, he couldn't believe it. He said this was a sensitive, lovely guy that I, you know, that I got to know. So yeah, that, those are the three groups. They, they were a mixed bag, but it's it's a, again we've got to avoid stereotypes, and it would be a stereotype to say that all of the Japanese were these fanatical extremists. It wasn't the case. Some of them were quite likable and got on well with the Aussies. So why did the camp authorities believe that the POWs were unlikely to attempt an escape, and what precautions did they have in place? They completely underestimated what was going on in the camp. They they knew that the Japanese ex- were feeling these great feelings of shame. It's why the Japanese weren't sent out on work parties because they knew they couldn't be trusted. You know they, that's why they kept them so under guard in the in the camp. Um, but they just they just didn't. It's the most frustrating aspect of it. Adam writing the book is they just didn't the complacency. They just didn't get it that, that it was right in front of them, and they the Australians just refused to believe that the Japanese would break out. That the Australians had this mentality. Why would you break out of the camp? You get good food. You're not in the war anymore. You're at no risk of death. You get good food. You can play baseball. You can hang out with your mates. You can write letters home to your girlfriend if you want to. Why would you break out of the camp? There's just no reason to do it. You've got no hope of getting back to Japan. You know, you're so far away from Japan. You can see where you are, how long it took you to get here. You can't join the war even if you broke out. I think this is the thing. The misconception is that when we think about the Kara breakout is that it was about freedom. When we talk about a prison break we're talking you know whether it's from a civilian prison or things like the great escape in germany you know stalag and the the escape from prison we're talking about prisoners wanting their freedom the allied prisoners wanted to escape from camp so they could return and rejoin the war effort so we we think of the cowra breakout in those terms and it's completely wrong the japanese had no expectations of rejoining the war effort or getting their freedom and living the rest of their lives in the bush in australia it was a battle this was a battle on australian soil they wanted to attack the guards, kill as many as they could and and bring the battle to the Australians, re restart the battle that they'd been fighting in New Guinea. So that was the that was the motivation behind the whole thing. So there was a big underestimation from the parts of the Australian guards as to as to what the Japanese would do. I mean, I've wandered off from your question. Your question was what precautions did they take? They actually did take some precautions. There was a um, in June nineteen forty four a Korean who'd recently arrived in the camp overheard some Japanese talking about how they were intending to launch a mass attack on the guards and he told the Australians he informed on the Japanese and they took him serious they took him absolutely seriously they they knew it was serious so the the Australians then responded to what they now knew was a Japanese plan to and this is the frustrating thing it's not just oh they, they were taken by surprise the Australians now knew that the Japanese had a plan to break out of the camp so they upgraded the defenses they brought in two machine guns two Vickers machine guns to cover it they started issuing grenades and ammunition to all of the men in the camp um, and most importantly, they then decided that they were going to move a big chunk of the Japanese prisoners out of Kaura to Hay Prisoner of War Camp, and that was what led to the Kaura breakout that when the Japanese knew this was coming up. So what, what triggered the Japanese POWs to make firm plans to escape, and why do you think that this provoked them? It's an interesting one. There's, there's, there's really two, asset, uh, two aspects to it. The... Japanese had been planning loosely for a long time to launch an uprising in the camp. And that was pretty standard for Japanese in camps across the Pacific. There was one in Featherston in 1943. There was an, a bit of an uprising there and 40-odd Japanese were killed at that uprising. There was a, an American camp in New Caledonia where there was a bit of an uprising and 20-odd Japanese committed suicide. So it was a pretty common thing, the idea that the Japanese would launch some sort of violent revolt in a camp. The 
So the Japanese had been loosely planning it for a long time. They'd been talking about what are we going to do? Okay, let's launch. Let's regain our honour by launching a battle, launching an attack on the guards and taking over the camp. So it had been a loose plan for a long time, but they'd started collecting weapons. They'd started sneaking knives out of the kitchen and keeping a few extra baseball bats, and they'd started doing a few things. So they had a very loose plan, but then what happened was this move to Hay. It's a funny roundabout result of the whole thing. Because the Australians knew that the Japanese were planning something, they then took steps to mitigate the risk, and in taking those steps, that was what caused the breakout. So the Korean informant told them that I know for a fact there is now a solid plan to break out of the camp, the Australians then beefed up the security with the machine guns and extra ammunition and stuff. But the most important thing was they said, we're now moving the Japanese prisoners to Hay. So what they did was they decided that they would move all of the other ranks. So these are the men, the privates, basically. We're going to move all of the privates out of B compound and just leave the NCOs in the camp. So all the corporals and sergeants would stay and we're going to move about 700 privates. We're going to take them and move them all the way to Hay camp. And the reason that was an issue was that the NCOs were the backbone of the Japanese military. The sar- you know, sergeants run the army. So the, the NCOs were the men responsible for the morale and the decision-making. They were seen as big brother figures in the camp. And so the Japanese were horrified at this idea that they would separate the privates from the NCOs. And so that was what prompted the Japanese to take action. So they had a loose plan, and then they said, we're going to take action. But the... One of the aspects that is most frustrating about this whole thing is the the camp was run by a guy called Lieutenant Colonel Monty Brown, who was a really interesting character. He he was very lenient on the Japanese. He even though they hadn't signed up to the Geneva Convention, he as he was required to do, he gave them the same requirements they otherwise would be. But in addition to that, he decided he was going to treat them the same as he would treat civilian internees in his camp. And it was required by law that civilian internees were given twenty four hours notice before they were moved. So applying that, it's so frustrating, applying that same logic, the move was set to be on Monday. On the Friday before that, he told the Japanese that we are taking the privates and we're moving them all to Hay. And so they gave the they gave the Japanese three days notice effectively that we're doing this. There was no reason to do it. They should have not told the Japanese at all. An hour before they marched them onto the trucks, they should have said, pack your bags and not even told them where they were going. They didn't have to t- tell them, but he decided he would. Gave him three days' notice of this happening. And the Japanese just said, We can't let it happen. Now's the moment we've now's the moment we've waited for. And we, we can't allow this to occur. So that was what prompted the the breakout was the informing of the Japanese that they were splitting them up. It's so frustrating. So were all the Japanese in favour of the attack? Interesting. Interesting question that hasn't adequately been answered. The what happened was the the probably describing the events will will tell you the Japanese attitude. So the Japanese, once they'd been informed that 700 men were being sent to Hay, got together that night, the Friday night, got together and said, we've got to do something about this. They all met in the camp and said, we've got to do something about this. And then quite famously, they held a vote. So they got squares of toilet paper and they would write a circle if they were in favour of the breakout or a cross if they were not in favour. And they had a vote. Each hut would vote. There were there were uh, 20 huts. Uh, sorry, 40 huts. Each, each hut would vote and they decided they would go with the majority rule. And it's estimated that about 80% of the Japanese voted in favour of the breakout, but it's more complicated than that. A lot of men voted yes because they knew that that was what it was expected of them or they were scared that if they didn't go along with it, they'd get punished. And But at the end of the day, the vast majority of prisoners voted to, to break out. Um, interestingly, we often say that a 1,000 prisoners participated or more than a 1,000. We make it sound like every Japanese in the camp participated in the breakout. That wasn't the case. It was about 120-odd Japanese 
who didn't participate in the breakout, who stayed in their huts. Another 20-odd committed suicide before the breakout occurred, but about 120-odd, the numbers seem to reflect, um, simply chose not to participate, stayed in their huts, and they were not. There's no evidence the Japanese punished them for that. The, so of the 1,104, about 120 took no active role uh, in the breakout. But that still means that 950-odd did, so it was obviously the majority. But but the evidence that I read from Japanese sources reflects that it wasn't, again, we have a mis conception about it that they're all fanatics and they couldn't wait to launch this suicide charge the evidence i read said a lot of japanese were not in favor of it. they thought it was a bad idea but it's very japanese when the majority of people said that we should break out um they said well we've got to go along with it it's also very um it's a very japanese decision was made that they said well the the hardliners as they call them that want to launch this attack do have a good argument their argument is you're still soldiers even though you're a prisoner and under our field service code were obliged to commit suicide rather than be captured and the moderates who did not follow the the line that we should break out of the camp in a very japanese way said well we don't have a good argument to counter that they're right we are still soldiers so even though we don't agree with it personally they we have not we are not able to present a decent counter argument therefore we you know we have to go along with it so um again complicated situation but the net result was that the they overwhelmingly voted that they would launch the breakout that night, the Friday night that they'd been informed of the move to Hay. So once the Japanese had come to terms with their escape plan, was part of that plan harming civilians once they escaped from the camp? No, they were very strict on that. The plan was they wanted to kill as many Australians in uniform as they could. They were launching the attack on the guards and hopefully on also on the army training camp. They were going to take over the prisoner of war camp and then attack the army training camp and kill as many Australians in uniform as they could before they were killed themselves. Make no mistake about it, their intention was to die in the attack, but it wasn't necessarily just a suicide attack. They weren't just going to go and kill themselves wantonly. They they wanted to take as many Australians with them as they could. So this was a genuine battle. We're going to take the battle to the Australians. Um, a, a, a vital part of the of the plan was no civilians are to be harmed and that was the case no civilians were harmed by the japanese so they were very strict on that that you are honor bound to obey this that we're not harming civilians it's only on the uh, the guards so in spite of the fact that it was a huge uprising um civilians were not harmed so what was the signal for the escape to begin uh interesting there was a um there was a tent in the middle of broadway the big the big road that that ran through the center of the camp and the australians as part of their precautions set up a tent and a little guard unit every night to sit in this tent and just keep an eye on the japanese um there was a a a guard called alf rolls and he um he was on guard duty and he saw a japanese prisoner coming running towards him from the compound and this japanese prisoner scaled there was there were three sets of fences that separated the compound he saw him scale the first fence and was yelling indecipherably in japanese and uh, it seems what had happened is this japanese prisoner had lost his nerve and wanted to tell the australians the breakout was about to occur um the japanese saw that this japanese informant was telling the australians so they said okay we've got to launch the attack now which was probably 10 minutes earlier than they'd intended to so this is just before 2 a.m uh on the saturday all on the friday night so early hours of the fifth of the fifth of august um so they saw this Japanese prisoner trying to spill the beans, and so they said, let's launch the attack. And so Manami, the man we mentioned, the Zero pilot, who was the first Australian captured, uh, first Japanese captured by the Australians, um, he had a bugle with him. He was an army bugler, and he blew the bugle, uh, which was the signal to launch the attack. So the Australian guards heard this piercing note come from this bugle, and that was the signal for the men to come charging out of their huts. And it's actually quite complicated. We'll, I'm sure in, as we go on, we'll get into the details of what actually happened, but it was actually a relatively complicated plan. It wasn't just... Japanese charging at guards. There was actually four different actions that took place as part of the breakout. Um, 
and each of them was quite different and each of them had a, quite a different effect. Uh, so the, the bugle was a symbol. And that bugle today is in the Australian War Memorial. They have the bugle as part of the collection of the Australian War Memorial. Well, it's a good way to lead into. So can you tell us about the escape itself and what happened when the Australians became aware that a mass attack was underway? Well, the answer to that last part of the question is they started shooting. Um, so the, 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 how the breakout unfolded, there were four main attacks. Um, sounds more complicated than it is. At the end of the day, it was men rushing towards barbed wire fences. But the, the first thing was to say is the fences. There were three perimeter fences, but they were surprisingly low. They're all barbed wire fences, but they're only about five feet high. And they're separated by about 10 feet. There was barbed wire in between them. So again, it's a decent obstacle, but we picture sort of, you know, 15 foot high razor wire fences. Well, nothing like that. They're only five feet high. Um, nasty barbed wire, but not something that was insurmountable. So four basic attack waves. Where will we begin? We'll start with Broadway, the main road. Two of the groups broke into Broadway they, and they broke in by throwing blankets over the fence and climbing over. So there's a fantastic book that was written about the Cara Breakout called Blankets on the Wire and that's because we see these photos after the breakout of the blankets draped across the barbed wire. So basically they took blankets with them, threw blankets over the wire. Two groups broke into Broadway, the main road that, that runs through the heart of the camp. They then turned, one group turned left and went south towards the southern gates of Broadway and one turned right and went north. And they basically attacked the gates at each end. Um, they didn't get very far. The, basically, there were guard towers there with machine guns in them. There were lots of guards on the other side of the fence. And basically, they just opened fire. And the, the Japanese that broke into Broadway, it was an absolute slaughter because they were trapped in this road with barbed wire fences on both sides. Couldn't get out. Couldn't go anywhere because they couldn't get through the gates at each end. Um, really couldn't go anywhere. And it was a bit of a shooting gallery. It was horrific, some of the stuff that went on. The Japanese... The Australians opened fire on the Japanese and cut down lots of them in Broadway and the survivors then did the only thing they could do which was get into the drainage ditches on both sides of Broadway where they sort of sheltered and most of them were still there in the morning, either dead or wounded or alive in the drainage ditches on both sides of Broadway. Um, so it was a bit of a slaughter in Broadway and none of the Japanese that broke into Broadway escaped from the camp. They were all captured within Broadway or killed there. Um, one group, the group that went towards the south, broke into the Japanese officers' compound decompound to try and free the Japanese officers. There were only 12 Japanese officers in that compound. They tried to free them, um, were unsuccessful. There was just too much fire coming from the Australian guard towers. Um, one Japanese or two Japanese officers decided they were going to make a break for it and try and join the attack. As soon as they left their hut, they got both got wounded by fire and one of them died, uh, Fujita. He was killed by machine gun fire um, and he was the only Japanese officer to die. So that was the attack on Broadway. It was pretty much over before it started and that was some of the most horrific scenes of the breakout. Another group who probably had the easiest job, there was only on the eastern side of the entire camp, there was only one guard tower and that was the side of the camp that faced open fields. One group of about 300 men charged the fences on that side trying to break out of the camp very successfully. Only five men were killed on the wire in that charge. The rest of them, the, the poor bloke, he was private. Kevin Manser was in F Tower and he was armed with an Owen gun and a couple of hand grenades. And an Owen gun is a little submachine gun that is no good, you know, at more than a few metres range. Uh, and he, he only had five magazines of ammunition anyway, so he couldn't hit anything with his Owen gun. He had his rifle as well. He fired off 20-odd rounds from his rifle. Couldn't do much with that. Uh, and they said, well, you had grenades. Why didn't you throw the grenades? He said, there wasn't enough room in the guard tower to lift your arm to throw the grenades. So that was the only guard they had on the entire eastern perimeter of the entire camp and he couldn't do anything about the Japanese escaping. So only five men were killed on that fence and the rest got through the fence and got out into the countryside. 
Um, so that was that big group. Uh, and the other one, the most famous aspect of the entire battle, is one of the vicar's guns that had been set up was set up very close to the fence, face uh, very close to the fence, facing into the compound. And there were two privates on that, privates Jones and Hardy. Again, the frustration. Adam, every part of the story is you're just so frustrated. Why did they set it up so close to the fence? It wasn't manned. They told the Japanese they were moving them in three days' time, yet Hardy and Jones were not on the gun. The gun was not manned. Hardy and Jones were in their barracks asleep when the breakout occurred. They had to then sprint to the gun. So it was a race between who would get to the gun first, the Australians or the Japanese. Hardy and Jones got there first, just ahead of the Japanese, and opened fire. But they only managed to fire 85 rounds before the Japanese overwhelmed them and both were killed on the gun, so both were bashed and stabbed to death um, and afterwards were awarded the George Cross for their bravery because they disabled the machine gun just before the Japanese were able to capture it. Uh, and that was the key part of the plan. The Japanese were going to capture this gun and then turn it onto the uh, onto the barracks. Um, a lot of the Japanese who were killed in the breakout were killed by fire from that machine gun, but also, and this was part of what my book revealed, We the, the story that's been told was Jones and Hardy opened fire with their machine gun and killed a lot of Japanese. Um, my research indicated that's not the case. They killed a number of Japanese, but most of the fire that killed the Japanese came from the other machine gun, number one machine gun. Uh, and Jones and Hardy were only managed only managed to fire eighty five rounds before they were before they were killed. So most of the Japanese that were a lot of Japanese were killed in front of that machine gun, but it was killed. They were killed by enfilade fire from the other machine gun. And so that was that. They were the four areas of the breakout. The Japanese that got through the fence there killed Jones and Hardy, um, and then ran off into the bush. And we should mention, Matt, that this is a this. Is a cold morning in August in in winter in Cowra, and it gets very cold. So that's a key point that we touch on. That it, it is cold in in winter in, in out the back of Cowra. It's very cold. Yeah, I don't know if anyone's been out to that area. It's where I grew up. But if you've been out to that area in winter, it is bloody freezing. It's scorching hot in summer and freezing in winter. And it's a really good point. The Japanese were well. It, it, it was handy for them because they were wearing lots of clothes because it was cold. So that helped them get through the barbed wire. They had lots of blankets because it was winter, which they used to get over the barbed wire. They used baseball gloves to protect their hands um but yeah the japanese that got out of the camp once because jones and hardy successfully disabled the machine gun and that's a whole other story about how they disabled the machine gun which we probably won't get bogged down on but because they disabled the machine gun it meant that the japanese plans all came undone that even the japanese who escaped now realized that they couldn't take over the prisoner war camp so probably 350 or maybe close to 400 japanese got through the fences and escaped from the camp. So it's considered the largest prison breakout in history because you're talking now three or 400 people got out of the camp and obviously many more killed within the camp. So the Japanese, once they were through the wire, basically just took off into the bush. So who were the first Australians to be killed in the attack? Uh, there were f- there were three Australians that were killed in the camp. So Jones and Hardy were killed on the Vickers gun and another bloke who's really the forgotten bloke of the whole story was a guy called Private Charles Shepherd. And his Jones and Hardy did an amazing job and should well be remembered for what they did on that machine gun. You know, they they got to the gun. They would have been forgiven for not even manning the gun when the Japanese were attacking it, but they did and they, they broke up the Japanese attack and then they disabled the gun before the Japanese could get to it and were killed in the attempt. So absolutely extraordinary. Poor old Charlie Shepard, though, his contribution was not as glorious. He, when the alarm went up, he basically came rushing out of, the, of his barracks, ran down the steps and came face-to-face with a Japanese prisoner who'd gotten through the wire and decided he was going to attack the Australians if he could. And that, through just a terrible stroke of misfortune, that Japanese prisoner just ran straight towards the barracks at the same moment that Charles Shepard came out, um, and the Japanese just took out a knife and stabbed him in the heart. So he was killed and died on the steps of the barrack room. And he's the the really sad aspect of the story, Charles Shepard, because 
because he hadn't, you know, fought on the gun and done all this heroic stuff and given his life, you know, last minutes disabling the gun, because of all that, he was completely overlooked. And his family didn't even get a pension because they said he wasn't in a war zone. He was just a guard in, a, in Australia. So his family didn't even get a, a pension like they would have if he'd been killed in New Guinea or North Africa. Uh and so his wife, basically, she had to give up their three children because she couldn't, couldn't feed them. And she died um, six or seven years after the breakout, pretty much destitute. It was a terrible part of the story. And his, his children always grew up not even knowing what... If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Their dad had done that no one could even, no one would even tell them that it was such a disaster, the breakout that the government kept it covered up for decades. And so his children could never find out even in the 1960s, 1970s, they're still writing letters to the government trying to find out how their dad had died and, and what had happened. But it was just, a, again, a shameful part of the story that poor old Charlie Shepard, his family, were never looked after. And no one even knows about him. No one remembers him. Um, so he's a he's an unfortunate bloke. But then, So they were killed in the camp during the breakout. Uh, another bloke, again, another terribly unfortunate story, a guy called Harry Doncaster was a lieutenant at the Army training camp. We'll probably get to him in a bit more detail. But he was killed um, 
the, at the end of the, in the on the evening of the fifth, the, the, the day of the breakout, he was killed while rounding up Japanese prisoners. Um, and then, interestingly, I wasn't the first person to come across this. I'm, I'm not claiming that I came across this fact, but I certainly expanded on it. Um, probably more than other people have done. But there was a, a, another guy uh, called Thomas Hancock who was a private, and he was in the um, as he was a sergeant, he was in the um, Volunteer Defence Corps, and he was killed a few days after the breakout. He was accidentally shot while helping to round up prisoners a few days after the breakout. Um, he's completely overlooked. They say that four Australians were killed in the breakout, and I say, well, he should be considered as well as one of them. He was, he was shot and killed accidentally while um, rounding up prisoners, so I include him as the fifth Australian killed. And I must say on a little side note here, Matt and I have actually been to his grave. It's actually, I did a tour with Matt in 2018. We did the Cower Breakout Tour and we actually stopped at his grave. So it's it's been, it was a privilege to stand at his grave. Yeah, I think it's important Tom Hancock's buried in Blaney, the town next to, the next town along from about half an hour from Cowra because he was from Blaney and that was where he was accidentally shot um, a few days after the breakout and died of his wounds and is buried in Blaney Town Cemetery. And yeah, I think it's he's I think he should be remembered. I'm lobbying pretty hard the Australian War Memorial. He's not even mentioned on the Roll of Honour. His name's not listed on the Roll of Honour. So I'm lobbying them pretty hard. And some people said, well, it was because he was in the Volunteer Defence Corps, not in the regular army. Um, but I my research indicated there's 74 guys from the VDC who are recorded on the Roll of Honour at the War Memorial. Um, most of them died of accidents or illness, obviously, in Australia. Uh, so it's not the VDC members are on the Roll of Honour. Uh, Thomas Hancock, his wife was given a, his widow was given a pension. He's buried under a military headstone in a in a in the in the cemetery in Blaney. Uh, he an inquiry found that he was on active service when he died. There's you know he's serving in uniform. Um, so there's nothing. There's no reason I can see that he's not remembered. Firstly, as the fifth um, victim, Australian victim of the breakout, uh, but also he should be on the War Memorial in Canberra. So hopefully. My book and podcasts like this one will put a bit more pressure on the the, the people that do fine work at the War Memorial, but that is an oversight. He, his name, there's absolutely no reason I can see that that, that Thomas Hancock's name is not on the Roll of Honor at Canberra. I did, I wasn't aware of that. So yeah, right. That's very interesting that he's not included. Yeah, just again, this story, Adam. I mean, as you go, I, I thought I knew the story, but you just go into it, just failings and oversights, and then guilt and shame and embarrassment and cover-ups. It's just, it's an intriguing but a frustrating story. The Cara Breakout should never have occurred. And then when it did occur, it shouldn't have been covered up like it was at all. And these people should be recognised for what they did. So over the next few hours, what unfolded and was the town aware that a breakout was happening and was there general panic? Yeah, the town was absolutely aware that a breakout was happening. The funny thing about it that, again, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but the frustration of this whole thing was that the town's people knew a breakout was coming. They, Korean labourers who worked at the rail yards, they, they they spoke about it. There was a bloke who, who gave a report after the breakout. He said, oh, every time the Koreans came out to work at the rail yards, they'd tell us that the Japanese were planning to break out. We all knew in the town. You know, we were all we all had our shotguns ready. We knew the Japs were breaking out. It's, everyone in the town knew. Everyone knew this was coming up. So it was so frustrating. So as soon as it occurred, the warning signal given was two rifle shots fired in the air, and then they fired flares so the army camp was aware that the breakout was occurring. But the t- it's only a couple of kilometres outside town, so they saw the, f- the Japanese burnt their huts down. They set fire to their huts. Um, and so the townspeople saw the flames from the burning huts and obviously heard the, the gunfire because as soon as the Japanese started to break out, there was a, vol- a huge volume of gunfire brought against them. The, the Australians fired 11,000 rounds during the breakout, so it just shows the volume of fire that was put down on them. So the townspeople knew very well what was going on. I saw a fantastic interview with a, 
a, a woman who lived with her fiancé on his farm, not very far from the camp, um, and they spent all night huddled in the lounge room as bullets overshoots from the camp smacked into their house, and her, her fiancé, Cyril, prized one out of the laundry wall and kept it the rest of his life as a souvenir. So there were bullets flying all over the place. Um, so, yeah, the uh, people in town knew. They didn't really panic. They were very concerned. Um, there wasn't really too much panic, um, but they... They were very concerned. They were always very wary of the Japanese. They knew a breakout was on the cards, and then when it occurred, they were very worried. That uh, the expectation was that the Japanese were fanatics that they would, you know, rape, murder, and pillage in the district, which uh, which they obviously didn't do. But uh, the Australians were very, very concerned, and it actually led to an incident which we can talk about as well, where uh, the one of the Australian civilians took matters into his own hands. But uh, another part of the story. Absolutely. So aside from the camp troops, the Royal Australian Air Force Police. Australian military force trainees and women from the Australian Women's Battalion based at Cowra assisted in the roundup of POWs. Roughly how many personnel were involved in recapturing the POWs? And it's a good time to bring in what happened to Harry Doncaster. Yeah, okay. So there were a lot of people involved in the roundup. So most of the, um, initially, most of the troops that were sent out. So we're looking at about, let's say, 300 in loose terms prisoners that were outside, you know, 24 hours after the breakout, there's probably 300 odd prisoners unaccounted for on the run. So a lot dead in the camp. A lot had been killed in the camp. Um, A number had committed suicide within the camp, but probably a few hundred are out on the run. So they had to start rounding them up. So firstly, it was members of the guard unit went out from the camp and they brought in a lot of Japanese who hadn't gotten very far. They were either wounded or once they were out of the camp, didn't know what to do with themselves. So just basically sat down. Um, But some Japanese, particularly the most fanatical ones, decided they were going to cause as much trouble as they could and they were going to get as far away from the camp as they could so off they went usually in small groups and disappeared into the countryside mostly heading north away from the camp the campsite is north of the town so when they broke out they headed away from town Uh, so they headed north so the army training camp eventually supplied troops to round up we'll talk about that in a minute but yeah the local police force was pretty active in going out and rounding people up there's a fascinating map i came across which someone's actually marked where they captured recaptured Japanese from all over the district. So the Japanese went everywhere. Um, so rounded them up over the next... It took nine days to round up all the... Ja- the last Japanese prisoner wasn't rounded up till nine days after the breakout. Most of them within the first couple of days, though. Um, interestingly, someone sent me an email only this week saying, have you come across any evidence that the fire brigade was involved? Because he had heard a suggestion that his uncle or grandfather had been in the local fire brigade that they participated and I know that would be something that's of great interest to you, Adam. I have not seen any records that indicate the fire brigade were involved, but now that I think about it, they must have been, you know, at, at least in a peripheral way. I, I can't imagine the fire the fireys were out rounding up prisoners, but you'd think that they would have called in the service of the fire brigade as well. They called in the Volunteer Defence Corps, you know, the, the sort of the army reserves from the area. So there were hundreds and hundreds of people involved, thousands of people involved in the roundup. Well, when you think about it, Matt, sorry to cut you no, off. No, jump in. You would think that they would probably be involved in putting out the huts in, in the camp itself. Like, Yeah, that's the interesting one as well. I can't see any evidence. They 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 couldn't. They It was so, it was the huts were burning in the middle of the uprising, in the middle of the breakout, so they couldn't do anything to put the huts. So the huts eventually did go out when they burnt to the ground. And any photos you see, there's an aerial photo and there is nothing left of the huts. They're, um, oh, it's good timing. There's a, what sounds like a fire siren outside the window as we go. It must be, it must be fate. But um, yeah, so no, there was no fire brigade involved in putting out the huts because there were too many Japanese running around trying to kill Australians and Japanese being killed themselves. But um, the interesting one we should talk about with the roundup is the, um, the army training camp, as you said. Now, this was, a, an, again, another huge oversight. So Colonel Mitchell was the commander of the Army training camp, a World War One legend. He 
he five mentions in dispatches, the Quarter Gear, Military Cross. This, I mean, he was an absolute Anzac legend. He landed on the first morning at Gallipoli and got shot the first afternoon. So he took a bullet in the leg the first afternoon at Gallipoli. So this was an absolute legend, this guy. So Colonel John Mitchell, by the Second World War, he's in his 50s now, and he had also led the 8th Battalion in North Africa uh, and Greece. He'd, so he'd, he'd, he'd been the commander of the 8th Battalion on the Western Front after Gallipoli, and then he'd commanded the 2nd 8th Battalion at the start of the Second World War in North Africa and Greece. So this was an absolute war hero. And he ran the camp very, very well, the training camp. But the one thing, for whatever reason, I, I don't think he liked having a POW camp in the area. I just don't think he liked it. He didn't like the Japanese. He didn't like having the camp there. And when he was informed in June, after the Korean informant, when they said to him, the Japanese are likely to break out of the camp, he put all these plans in place to protect his army training camp. But he made very loose plans for getting involved in rounding up prisoners in the event that there was a breakout. And that's what happened. The army training camp, and for reasons I couldn't find, it's inexcusable, the army training camp was not asked to supply troops to help with the roundup until the evening of the 5th of August. So the breakout occurred at 2 a.m., on the 5th of August. So it's 14 hours later that the first discussions were held about can the army supply troops. They already knew there were more than 300 Japanese outside the camp, but it wasn't until 4pm on the day of the breakout that they started talking about can we supply army troops. And of course, it's winter in Kara. The sun goes down at 5. So at 4pm, they started talking about let's send out some troops. And Mitchell ordered, because he felt that the recruits were very poorly trained, he ordered that the he sent out about 500 men to help round up Japanese prisoners, but this is the most frustrating. It's awful what I'm about to describe. He said, so they went out in groups of about 20 or 25 recruits commanded by an officer, and he instructed that the recruits would only carry bayonets, no rifles because they couldn't be trusted to use them, which is completely untrue. But anyway, that aside, they would only be armed with bayonets in scabbards, not even on the end of a rifle. Even if they'd sent them out with an unloaded rifle with a bayonet on the end of it, the Japanese wouldn't know the rifles were unloaded, but instead just a bayonet in the hand, the officers, I can't even believe I'm saying it, the officers were ordered not to carry arms at all. Harry Doncaster, Lieutenant Harry Doncaster, who led one of these parties, was completely unarmed. Not a pistol, not a rifle, not a bayonet, not a knife, not a wooden spoon. Completely unarmed. And he went out and led a group of these recruits in the fading light north of the camp and they went out and they came across a group of Japanese in the hills um, the young recruits couldn't do much with their bayonets. They, understandably, they panicked, ran away. One of them pegged his bayonet at the Japanese and then took off. Um, and Harry Doncaster was last seen fighting with rocks and then his fists as the Japanese overwhelmed him and he was beaten to death by the Japanese. Uh, so he was the fourth Australian to be killed. And it's just... And, and everyone was scathing of that decision. Every inquiry that was held after the breakout and now through history we look back and think it was just completely unnecessary. He He was a veteran of North Africa... He should have been carrying his pistol at the very least. Um, and he wouldn't, it wouldn't have happened. If he'd had a pistol, he would have rounded up eight or ten Japanese and brought them back to camp. They would have surrendered and he would have rounded them up. Um, as it was, he was completely unarmed and they overwhelmed him and bashed him to death. When I first heard that story with you, I'm, I'm gobsmacked of... You'd say that his death was on the hands of his commanding officer. It's undisputed that he was killed and... He didn't need to like he if he had had a pistol he would have he probably would have survived and it's Mitchell's position was completely untenable. He said that they said why did you not send them out armed and after he found out Doncaster had been killed after that reports came back to him he sent out armed parties who brought back Doncaster's body and rounded up some Japanese and 
um, when he was asked, why did you, why were you so happy to send out armed patrols late in the evening but not in the afternoon? He said, because I didn't, the situation changed. I now knew with Doncaster's death that there was, in his words, a killer amongst the Japanese. But that's ridiculous. Three guards had already been killed at the camp. He knew that they were desperate and dangerous and armed. Um, and this effectively ended his career after this, in sp- his glorious career. I, I, I have a huge amount of respect for him for what he did in the First World War and the start of the Second World War. He was an absolute hero. Um, but this ended his career. Harry Doncaster never should have died. The Carra breakout never should have occurred. The Australians should have stopped it and before it started. And especially Harry Doncaster never should have died lonely on the side of that hill fighting with his bare hands. You know, as a Japanese overwhelmed him. It's awful. And when you go to Carra today, there is a memorial out on the road where Doncaster was killed and we always go out there. You know, you came with me, Adam, when we went out there and we always go out there and pay our respects to just, again, just an unnecessary death. And the all of the inquiries that came afterwards were scathing of the fact that Doncaster was unarmed. Every every inquiry, even the ones that did a good job of covering up the whole thing and doing sort of the government's good work to cover it up, were all scathing of the fact that Doncaster was unarmed. Terrible chapter of the story. So what did many of the POWs do to themselves rather than be returned to the camp? The vast majority did nothing. The vast majority went out and sat around and waited to be captured, which they were, and they sent a they spent a very cold, hungry night out in the bush and were eventually rounded up. So that was the vast majority. That's the first thing we should say. Some, which I think you're alluding to, didn't do that. There are a small number of examples of them carrying on the fight, so attacking Australians who tried to capture them. Uh, most of those were suicidal charges. The, you know, A number of Japanese were shot and killed attacking Australian soldiers that came to round them up. One Australian soldier was wounded. He got stabbed in the neck by a Japanese that jumped on him. Um, but that was really the only, um, apart from Harry Dodcaster, obviously, that was really the only injury that occurred to soldiers trying to round up the Japanese. Some of the Japanese were killed out of hand by the Australians, not given the opportunities to surrender. And there's a famous account from Roy Treasure, who became a boxer. Um, Roy Treasure was a skinny teenager at the time, and on his family farm at Cowra, he reported that he could see five Japanese just sitting under a tree. They escaped from the camp, they came a few k's, sat down under a tree, um, some Australians turned up at the camp, um, didn't even give them a chance to surrender, just walked up and shot them all. So there were examples of that. Um, but a number of the Japanese also committed suicide um, once they were out of the camp. So a lot of them hanged themselves with their... Not, not a lot, but maybe 20 Japanese probably committed suicide by either killing themselves with knives. I mean, it's all pretty gory, but killing themselves with knives or hanging themselves. And two of them in the most gory incident threw themselves under a train from that was going from Blaney to Cowra. So they lay down on the tracks in front of the train and were run over by the train. So, yeah, so probably 20-odd Japanese committed suicide um, after having broken out of the camp. But we should, again, just to separate the fact from the fiction and this concept that all the Japanese were fanatics who just wanted to commit suicide, the vast majority of the Japanese that broke out of the camp were recaptured without incident and brought back to the camp. So after the breakout, a military court of inquiry was held and its findings were presented to the House of Representatives by the Prime Minister, John Curtin. What were some of the key findings of that report? It's really fascinating. This was one of the things that I thought was most interesting. And the chapter where I talked about this, I called it the cover-up because that was the point. Here's the backstory to the courts. So in the end, there were two military courts were held and a coronial inquiry was held into the breakout. And then separate inquiries held to things like um, the death of Thomas Hancock, the fifth man that got accidentally killed. But so two two military inquiries and a coronial inquiry, and then eventually even a murder trial was held as well. So very a lot of investigation was done. The interesting thing was, though, the government knew straight away what a bad look this was. And I don't blame them for this attitude. They've been highly criticised for this, but I think it's fair enough. They said there's 23,000 Australians who are prisoners of the Japanese. 
most of them captured in Singapore and who are currently now on the Thai-Burma railway and not having a good time of it as it already is, we don't want to give the Japanese an excuse to retaliate against Australian prisoners. So they were very determined that they had to handle this by the book. And so the strategy they came up with, the Prime Minister himself was involved in this decision. The decision was we're going to impose blanket censorship on reporting until we've had a chance to do a formal inquiry into what went on and then we'll release those findings to the Japanese. So it's all by the book. The Japanese can see we've got nothing to hide, et cetera, et cetera. But of course, from the first moment, they even said to the court, the point of the court is to lay the blame at the feet of the Japanese and to clear the guards of any wrongdoing. That was the point of the report, of the inquiry. And that is what the inquiry found. They interviewed about 60 people, including Japanese prisoners. Uh, and this was in the days immediately after the breakout. So it was only within a number of days after the breakout. They interviewed Australian guards, the commanding officers, and seven Japanese prisoners who had survived the breakout. And then a week later, released their findings, which was the Japanese had no reason to break out of the camp. Um, they were well looked after. There was no excuse to break out of the camp. Um, the Australian guards had treated them perfectly reasonably under the terms of the Geneva Convention as they were supposed to um, and the, the, the blame for the event was the Japanese themselves who'd broken out. Um, so it was a total cover-up in terms of it didn't ask questions about how the breakout could have been avoided, did the Australian Guards act responsibly. Um, but what I say in the book is in spite of that, in spite of the fact that it was there was no way it was a judicial process, they, they, had, the t- they had reached their findings before they asked their first question. But in spite of that, you still can't fault them for what they said. The truth is, the Japanese, who was responsible for the Japanese, who was responsible for the Kara breakout? The Japanese that launched the attack. You you can't fault them for that. The Australians could have done more to stop it and things like the death of Doncaster were terrible and even even this sort of bodgy coronial, this bodgy military inquiry still commented on Doncaster that it was ridiculous that he was killed. Um, At the end of the day, as dodgy as the setup was and as much as it was a cover-up job, they, are, they were correct at the end of the day. The, the people responsible for the breakout were the Japanese that decided to launch it. Um, as I said in the book, the, it was the questions the court didn't ask that were most important. You know, were, was there Australian blame because they didn't take more precautions? You know, why didn't they search the camp? Why did, were the machine guns unmanned? Why did they give them, you know, 36 hours notice of the move? You know, why weren't the fences better? Um, you know, why was Doncaster sent out unarmed? All the questions the court didn't ask was its biggest failing, but you can't fault its ultimate failing, which was the Japanese were responsible. Um, they transmitted that to the Japanese via the neutral Swiss. Uh, the Japanese were informed. Um, and an interesting side note to all this is the Japanese reaction to the to receiving this information that more than 200 of their countrymen had been killed. The Japanese responded and said, they can't be prisoners of war. They must be civilians because there are no such thing as Japanese prisoners of war because no Japanese would allow himself to be captured. So they actually gave, as I said in the book, they gave the Australians a bit of a get-out-of-jail-free card there because what that meant was the Australians then knew that the Japanese were not going to want to risk the embarrassment and the, the break in morale that would come from a full, truthful expose of what had gone on in Kara. So the fact the Japanese were saying, oh, they're not, they're not soldiers, they must have been civilians, it's murder, you've killed some civilians and we're really cranky and this is not good enough. The Australians then knew that would be the end of it, that the Japanese, by saying that, were effectively saying we don't want any more investigations, we don't want more, any more press coverage, and that's exactly what happened. There was a bit of outrage from the Japanese and then the whole thing disappeared. The Japanese didn't want to talk about it either. Sounds like an absolute, as you say, a cover-up. A shit show yeah, is how I would describe yeah, it. It's show, just unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> unbelievable. Absolutely. So after the war, the POWs were returned to their homelands. 
How has Cower remembered this event and what relationship does Kaura have with Japan and can you tell us the significance of the town receiving the rare gift of the peace bell? Yeah, it's 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 the great the great silver lining that comes out of this whole thing. So, I mean, we should look at the numbers. 234 Japanese died in the breakout. Uh, so either by being the majority killed by Australian gunfire uh, and a number, probably 40 of that number, committing suicide, um, either before the breakout occurred, so hanging themselves or committing, you know, you, you know, committing seppuku with a knife in the huts or after escaping from the camp. So 234, that's a lot. So the largest prison breakout in history, we would call this, and five Australians killed. So... Obviously, a disaster of mammoth proportions. Um, then there was a bit of a cover-up. It wasn't until the 1960s. A fantastic journalist called Harry Gordon, uh, a wonderful journalist and had been a war correspondent in Korea, and he wrote a book about it called Die Like the Carp, in the, which came out in the 70s. But he was responsible for a lot of this being revealed because he, um, in the 60s he did all this research and got access to documents the governments didn't want him to see, so he was the first one to tell the story. And basically what it meant is immediately after the war... Kaura, I think, wanted to forget what had gone on. So the the 234 Japanese who'd been killed were buried in a separate plot next to the town cemetery. So not in the town cemetery, but they created a separate plot and buried all of the Japanese in that cemetery. And then next to that was an Australian plot where the where the four Australians who'd been killed in and around the camp, so um, Jones, Hardy, Jones and Hardy who'd been killed on the machine gun, Shepard who'd been stabbed by the Japanese prisoner, Doncaster, who'd been killed unarmed while rounding up the prisoners, they were all buried in the in the Australian section of the the Carra War Cemetery, uh, and Thomas Hancock was buried in his family plot in Blaney, just down the road. Uh, there's about 25 Australians buried in the Australian section of the War Cemetery. Um, the other men were killed in mostly in training accidents at the Army training camp, or car accidents, or illness in the Army training camp. So. At the end of the war, you had 25 Australians buried in an Australian plot. You had 234 Japanese buried in a Japanese plot. Um, and this was one of the really fascinating aspects of studying what happened afterwards is is what became of that. Basically, the Japanese refused to acknowledge that there were any Japanese buried in Kaura because they said, again, they were, you know, these are, there's no such thing as a Japanese prisoner. So the Japanese refused to acknowledge that there was any Japanese buried in Kaura. The Japanese cemetery fell into disrepair because no one would take responsibility for it until the RSL stepped up. And the RSL was doing some maintenance work on the Australian camp and they said it's not good enough that the Japanese graves are not tended to. So there were thistles growing through it, rabbit warrens, the headstones were falling over. And in to their eternal credit, and you can this is in the late 1940s when, you know, a lot of men had come back themselves from Japanese prisoner war camps and the 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 you know the war crimes trials were being held and you know Japanese were absolutely hated in Australia. The RSL said it's not good enough that we're not tending to the Japanese graves, so the RSL started maintaining the Japanese cemetery, which was absolutely amazing. I couldn't believe it when I was reading about it. Um, then in the 1950s, um, a um, relations normalised between Australia and Japan. So for the first time, there was a Japanese ambassador in Australia, and he came and visited the graves, and his name was Suzuki, and he had the very far-sighted idea that. Firstly, he wanted to send the Japanese graves back to Japan, the Japanese bodies back to Japan, but the Japanese government said, no, again, prisoners, they don't deserve being sent back. Um, they don't exist anyway, and we're not sending them back. So he then said, well, okay, if we're going to... He started raising funds to maintain the Japanese cemetery, and then he came up with a very forward-thinking idea of all Japanese nationals who died in Australia during the Second World War, they should be concentrated together and we should build a Japanese war cemetery in Kaura. And that's exactly what happened. So about 525 
bodies in total, including the 234 in the Kara breakout, were collected together in Kara, and a proper formal Japanese war cemetery was built there. So who are these people? Uh, most of them are civilian internees who were in these internment camps because they were considered dangerous enemies of the state um, and they died of disease or, or some other cause during the camp. So consequently, there's lots of women there, there's lots of elderly people, and there's babies as well. The youngest person there is a 10-month-old baby. The oldest person there is a man in his 80s, uh, and all the men who died in the in the, in the car outbreak and the car breakout. So in, the 19, in 1964, they opened this formal Japanese war cemetery. It was at the time and remains today the only Japanese war cemetery outside of Japan. So nowhere else in the world is there a Japanese war cemetery. So there's the big one in the big shrine in Japan, uh, and there's Kara. Those are the only two Japanese war cemeteries in the world. Um, and, yeah, so it's got 500-odd Japanese buried there. There's a little shrine. It was designed by a Japanese a man who was lecturing, an architect who was lecturing at Melbourne University at the time. Um, and it's a beautiful little spot. So that forged the bond between Kaura and Japan in the early days. The great And the Japanese, were in the, in the 19, by the 1960s, the Japanese were very respectful of the job that Kaura was doing looking after these men. Um, and then in the 1970s, Kaura decided they wanted something a bit more. So they had these relations with Japan. They'd send school groups backwards and forwards. They'd have business trips would go over to Japan. So Kaura was forging this very strong relationship with Japan. And then in the 70s, um, local people from the Chamber of Commerce and the, and the council decided they wanted something a bit more solid to cement the relationship. And this, in the book, I call this a bit of a harebrained scheme, but I say that with deep respect that they got this off the ground. They decided to open a Japanese garden, a formal Japanese tea garden, on a huge scale. It's massive. It's not just a little corner of a park. You've been there, Adam. It's a massive, massive thing. They basically created, with all of the things that come with it, ponds and rivers and koi ponds and tea houses and a bonsai section and the whole thing in the middle of the harsh Kara landscape. You've got this idyllic little corner of Japan and it's crazy. It, it's, it, it never should have happened. They never should have been able to raise the money. They never should have been able to keep the plants watered. You've got cherry blossoms and trickling streams. And I love going there in the middle of summer when the fence line between the Japanese garden and the paddocks next to it, so it's just outside town, and the paddocks are rocky and brown and brown snakes slithering everywhere, just a piece of a straight. Then there's a fence, and then on the other side, it's manicured lawns and trickling ponds and bonsai trees, and it's just the most amazing thing. So the 1970s, they opened that, and they did an expansion of it in the 80s, and now it's this idyllic... They get, they get like 50,000 visitors a year now come there, and it's, it's beautiful, and it's become this link between Japan and Kaura. It's not a link between Japan and Australia. It's a link between Japan and Kaura. And it, the people of Kaura deserve a huge amount of credit for, for the job that they've done. And Japan has now given all these honours to the town of Kaura, including installing a peace bell um, in the town centre to represent peace. And the, again, the famous peace, um, the peace poles that you see in various places. You see them in Hiroshima. You see them in... I've saw them, seen them in concentration camps in Europe. It's just a peace pole that talks about peace on earth. There's one of those in Kaura as well. So, um, yeah, there's a very strong relationship between... Kaura and Japan. It's. I was laughing, Matt, because yes, it's exactly how you've described it. It is rugged, one side brown, and beautiful manicured lawns. And so we're talking about the garden. And who commissioned the garden, and why? Why was it, was it a a sign of Japan giving back to Kaura, or what is the garden's intention today? It was a it was an initiative of the townspeople of Kaura. They wanted a link, and I should I should say that in the nineteen seventies, the idea of Japanese gardens was actually quite in vogue. There were various places in America they were building them, and in England, and, you know, it was a bit of a it was a bit of an architectural uh, thing that people liked to do. 
Um, so it was an initiative of the townspeople to raise the funds and do it, but there was obviously with a lot of support from Japan, Japan, Japanese government and private individuals contributed money and obviously the, the, the it was a man called Ken Nakajima who was the Japanese, one of the best Japanese garden architects. He came out um, to design the garden um, and he noted when he saw the site where they were suggesting that coincidentally there were two very large rocks right at the top of the site and he said that's the that's the, that's the the vital aspect of a Japanese garden and uh, I, I wouldn't do him the injustice of trying to explain the significance but the two rocks represent peace and harmony and that's essential in any japanese garden and he said this is meant to be there's two rocks already on the site that you know that we would we'd otherwise have to bring in they're already here um and ken nakajima was so um so entranced with the garden that he designed in kaura that when he died in 2000 some of his ashes were scattered in the in the garden kaura which is amazing but it was an initiative of the townspeople with support from japan um, they travelled over to Japan and raised money. It was quite interesting. The, the the people I read some interviews with the townspeople, all obviously since long long passed away, but I read interviews with them where they talked about trying to raise this money for the garden. And um, they went to Japan to talk. They were in the design process, so they went to Japan to talk to some Japanese architects and garden designers. But when they got there, the Japanese press had picked up on it. What a great human interest story it was that all these Japanese lie in this tiny little town we've never heard of from the Second World War, and now they're building a garden to honour them. The Japanese loved it. And so by the time they arrived, there was all this press, and the Japanese people treated them as mini-celebrities when they arrived. And that, uh, that was uh, the consequence of that was a lot of funds were raised, which, which got the garden off the ground. And so your, my long-winded answer to your very good question is, what does it mean today? It's the tangible link between Kaura and Japan. It's a peace garden and a wonderful a wonderful monument to you know the, where the souls of the repose, you know the souls of the dead repose in this beautiful garden. And it's that idea that uh, you know it's a little piece of Japan. It's a there's something like six thousand different plants there, but some of them are Australian, some are Japanese. So it's bringing together the Japan. It's a it's a it's a it's a tangible link between Japan and Kaura and the the importance of of Kaura to the Japanese story and what it means today is it's really. It is a battlefield like any other. It wasn't just that this was a battle. I always say this was not about a prison breakout. This was a battle like any other. And today, the things that you and I may have done when we go to a battlefield, those elements are there in Kaura. So you can visit it like you would Gallipoli or the Western Front or Kokoda. The elements are there. There's the scene of the battle. And today, the remains of the, the ruins of the camp have been preserved as a place that you can go and visit. And they've, they've built a replica of a guard tower and you can walk the site and there's the ruins of the, some of the buildings there. Um, they've planted trees around where the perimeter fence was, so you can see how big it was, and so you can walk the in the footsteps of the of the of the battle at Kara. So there's a battlefield that you can go to. Um, there's a cemetery. There's a, obviously a war cemetery there now with Japanese and Australians buried in the cemetery. So uh, there's a, a battlefield, a cemetery, and now a memorial, the Japanese Garden. So you've got the three elements that we talk about when you visit a foreign battlefield, when you go to Gallipoli or France or anywhere. The, the three elements: the battlefield itself. Cemetery and memorial, so it's a really remarkable place. I love going out there. It it is, and where I've only had this, ha- I've had it happen a couple of times, Matt. But for me, standing where Hardy and Jones were were killed, it, it really it affected me. It, it really affected me of because you see the hopeless position they were in, and and it's it's a, it, it happened to me at the Neck at Gallipoli it, it, and Pozieres as well. And you feel a sense of like hopelessness, absolute hopelessness, and and it is. It's it's a. I say it to anyone who listens to this. 
if you get a chance, go out and visit Cowra. You, you you will not be, from what Matt's explained, it is a beautiful, I'm going to, it's not a right word, but it, it's a beautiful battlefield to, to go and visit. And then you've got, like Matt said, you've got the battlefield, you've got the cemetery, and then you've got the memorial. So it is, you almost feel that when you're standing in the in the beautiful gardens, you, you're thinking, this is just, you're sitting here going, this is, you're standing one side's, farming paddocks and the other side is just beautiful and it does it makes you stop and think of what actually occurred yeah um, and you're right mate i mean the what went on there was not beautiful at all what went on there was ghastly but the remembrance is beautiful and that's very true and that's that's what it's all about it's it is about reconciliation what what you and i do mate is about moving on it's not about being stuck in the past it's about understanding the past but as it relates to the present and it's about moving on and cowra is the perfect example of that and you're right you, you can walk that it's it's one of the most moving things to do is the you can walk from the site of the Japanese huts in the footsteps of the Japanese of the charged, and you walk up that gently sloping hill, and you can walk directly towards marked where the where the machine gun was, and so you are walking in the footsteps of the Japanese. You know when you've got okay, this is where they climbed the fences, this is where they got there, and then when you stand in that spot, just what a bleak and tragic end for Jones and Hardy. Imagine what that was. They were on a trailer with a machine gun, just getting surrounded, and they would have known they were gone. And then, yeah, the Japanese killed them, and you can you can stand that spot as you say, and it's a it's a moving spot. The snakes, I always talk about the snakes at the site. You go there in summer, there's bloody snakes everywhere. You got to be really careful. I wouldn't recommend walking and doing that walk I just described in the middle of summer. You'll tread on a brown snake. It's just why do snakes love that site so much? They they just snakes love it. They must they must know what went on there. But um, it's just it's an eerie. It's an eerie place, and you go there, and then you drive. It's only a kilometre away to the cemetery, and then you go and stand in front of Jones and Hardy's grave, and then you walk through a little grove of trees, and you're in the Japanese section, and then you're surrounded by all the Japanese that were killed, and airmen that were shot down in Darwin, and civilians that died in internment camps. It's a whole other story, you know, the question of should we be locking up civilians, and I tell a story in the book of Australians who, whose parents were Japanese and had moved to Australia many years before the war, had children, the children didn't speak Japanese and had never been to Japan, but were still locked up in internment camps because they were considered, you know, threats to national security. So there's a whole other. I'm not saying whether that was right or wrong, but there's a whole other discussion that should be had about civilian intern internments. There was a bloke that I read about who um, he was a laundry. He was we worked. He ran a laundry. I think in towns Rockhampton. He ran the local laundry in Rockhampton. He'd lived in Australia for decades. His son was serving in the AIF and fighting with the Australians in Malaya. And he was interred. While his son was off fighting against the Japanese in Malaya, he was locked up in a camp because they thought he was a security risk. Another guy was um, 42, and he'd emigrated to Australia when he was five. And was inter and he was locked up. In a, he was locked up. For, and he eventually got out of the camp. He was one of four men that were given their freedom in 1942 from an internment camp because he was a farmer and he had a big tomato farm down in Victoria. So they wanted him to... They wanted him to go back in essential industry to work on the farm. But he was banned from going more than 10 kilometres from his farm until 1946, a year after the war was over. He was still only allowed to go within 10 miles of his own farm. So there's a whole other story that needs – maybe that'll be the next book, but just talking about internment in Australia. I'm not even saying it's wrong, but I'm saying it was certainly harsh. Um, and the people that died in these camps are now – you know, hundreds of them now lying in Cowra. So it's, it's an amazing story at every level.
I can see a tangible link, Matt, between that and the First World War when the Germans were interred in camps as well for being potentially, they would think, spies. But I know my relative actually was one of the guards that actually guarded the Germans in, in Hol- at Holsworthy. And it's a uh, whole, it's a tangible link that in two world wars, it's, you know, it's like... A, it's, a fascin- it's a story that hasn't been well enough told. It's, we don't even really know about it. And there's been a couple of really good books written about it, but it needs to be more broadly told, the story of civilian internment during the First and Second World Wars. But interestingly, the, in the Second World War, the Germans and Italians were uh, undesirables, were selected. So fascists and Nazis, predominantly, were interred. Um, but if you were just an Italian civilian who'd lived in Australia forever, you were happy to get on with your life. Didn't apply to the Japanese. They considered that every Japanese was a security risk, um, men, women and children. So they were all locked, if you were Japanese and in Australia. And it was awful. Like, as I said in the book, um, it was reminiscent that, you know, refugees from Europe would be find this eerily reminiscent. Groups of Australian guards clearing out Japanese communities in towns, rounding them up and sending them off to camps. Men, women and children rounding, putting them on trucks and sending them off to camps. Um, so, yeah, pretty, obviously a tough time. And, um, but a story that gets told in Cowra because you can stand in that cemetery in front of those graves of these civilians as well as the, as the ones that were killed in the breakout. And, um, yeah, and just this, this chapter of the story is revealed. So how do you think the breakout was viewed by Japanese at the time and since then? And is the Cower breakout well known today or is it largely unknown? Oh, well, it's largely unknown in Australia, so it's completely unknown in Japan. It's, um, the, it's part of the whole story of... Look, I don't, I don't blame the Japanese. We, Japanese get a hard time that they don't learn enough about the Second World War. I don't blame them for not dwelling on it. You know, the Germans don't spend a lot of time talking about national socialism either. I mean, at the end of the day, it's not a pretty part of their history, and I, so I don't blame them for, you know, not getting too bogged down in it. I think we all agree that Japanese young people should know more about what went on, but the cower part of the story is virtually unknown, as it probably should be. You know, it's a small part of a very big war. Um, the Japanese people that do know about it, they do a good job um, remembering Um and yeah, the breakout today—it's not very well known. That's why I wrote the book. That's why the book's called *The Cowra Breakout*. You know, it's you know because I don't think people know the story very well. So, um, you know, the Japanese at the time, as we said, as we already touched on, refused to acknowledge that it had happened at the time of the breakout. They were happy to cover it up, like the Australians were. Um, they didn't want to know about it after the war. But eventually, thanks to the good work from mostly from Japanese ambassadors and diplomatic staff in Australia, the cemetery was built. Even then, there was a bit of a cover-up. They didn't invite any families of the dead men to come out. Uh, so, you know, that was that was widely criticised in Japan that families hadn't come out. What I should say, though, is since then, a lot of survivors of the breakout came. They formed a society called Kaurakai, which was an association back in Japan of survivors of the breakout, and they came out many times to pay their respects. And, in fact, you were there for the 75th when um, was, yeah. Mr Murakami, was that his name, yes. was the last survivor? Yes. He's the last survivor of the breakout, 98, lovely old man. I spoke to him very briefly and he didn't have a lot of... He couldn't remember a lot about the breakout after all those years. But um, And I think he was a bit bemused that people even cared about that chapter of his life. Uh, but he'd been captured in New Guinea and uh, participated in the breakout, didn't do much during the breakout. I think he sensibly took cover when the shooting started. Uh, but he was the last survivor and he, he's still alive now. But he uh, he came out for the 75th anniversary in 2019. And um, he was so that was the last time a Japanese survivor came. Uh, there's no guards left. All the Australian guards have passed away. So we're, he's the last tangible link with the story. 
Um, but we should say that, that a lot of veterans came out. There were some veterans. Uh, there was a guy called Mr. Doe who was a camp leader for a while. He was very prominent. He led Karakai. He helped establish Karakai. Um, Mariki, a guy called Masaru Mariki, who wrote an amazing memoir, if you, which you can find online if you look out for that. And I quote, for, he's, he's my main Japanese source in the book. He wrote an amazing memoir about surviving the breakout. He was wounded in New Guinea and captured and came off, came to the camp. He came back several times and he ran Karakai as well in Japan. Uh, Kanazawa was the camp leader who was eventually tried for murder of, of Ben Hardy. Um, and was not convicted of that murder because he didn't kill Ben Hardy, and they didn't know they don't know who did. Um, but he he came out a few times and was quite prominent in remembrance afterwards. So some of the Japanese were very prominent. The survivors were prominent in remembering the story and coming back to Kaura to pay their respects. But it also should be noted that at its height, Karakai only had thirty or forty members of the seven hundred fifty eight hundred men who who had participated in the breakout. Um, so the majority of the Japanese who survived the Kara breakout never spoke of it and probably, in all honesty, probably never even told their families that they'd been prisoners, probably just got on with their lives and said, I came from the battlefield and um, and never mentioned they'd been prisoners, never joined the society and never returned to Kara. So Prime Minister Curtin said that the attack was a suicidal disregard of life do you share his observation, and is that how history has remembered it? Interesting. Uh, yes and no. Uh, that was based on a, a, a statement that he made after the Court of Inquiry released its findings. So once they transmitted the results of the court to the Japanese via the Swiss, he then made a statement so that the Australians could be the first ones to make a statement. And I've got to say, it was a little bit sensationalist, his statement, but he did sum it up pretty well, I thought. My, my opinion it was a page and a half where he sums up what went on, and I think it was a fairly accurate assessment. Yeah, it was. It was a suicidal waste of life. We don't understand it well enough. It was completely unnecessary. It shouldn't have happened. The Japanese survivors looked back, as, especially as old men, when they wrote their memoirs and said, we shouldn't have done it. it you know, it was just another loss of life in a terrible war. Um, I think what we owe to these people now is we, we misunderstand the breakout. So we either think that it was, again, about freedom you know, there was silly. My grandparents used to tell me back in West Wyalong when we talk about. I'd ask them about the Kara breakout, and they'd say, "Oh, they were trying to get back to Japan. They didn't realise how far away from Japan they were." So we think of it in terms of freedom and like a you know, like the Great Escape from from Starleg Luthery, and it wasn't like that at all. It was, but it wasn't a suicide charge at the same time. So it wasn't a quest for freedom, and at the other end of the scale, it wasn't let's just commit suicide because otherwise they all just would have hung themselves in their huts. It was a battle. And when you understand it in those terms, these these were warriors who wanted to take the battle back to the Australian Guards. It doesn't justify it and it never should have happened. The Japanese are to blame for the Kara breakout. The Australians should have stopped it, but at the end of the day, the Japanese are the ones that, that launched this attack and killed all those people and resulted in all those deaths. So they are responsible for it. It never should have happened, but we can understand it a bit more when we think of it in those terms. These were warriors who wanted to continue the war and, and do what they could for the war effort. So that's why they did it. They were wrong and they shouldn't have done it. Uh, they, obviously, they obviously shouldn't have done it. And the whole thing was a huge, colossal waste of life that never should have occurred. Um, but writing this book, at least I understand their motivations for doing it. And that makes a bit more sense. It becomes a little less senseless when you understand their mindset. When Curtin reads, he goes, why would people who are happy and healthy, why would they charge machine guns? And if you look at it in those two-dimensional terms, you never really gain that understanding. But if you start to think about it and start to look into it a bit further, you can understand at least why they did it. And, you know, hopefully that's what the book contributes. It's a – talking to you, Matt, and walking that ground and 
It's a story of frustration. It's a story of should have, would have, could have, could have been prevented. And it's just, it's a story of, like I always refer back to, every human life matters. No matter no matter what side of the fence you're on, whether it's the enemy or the allied side, every every human life matters in this world and it's a tragedy it's a tragedy it's a tragedy that never should have happened yeah it's the you know it's what we do mate is we we've never we always should remember that that we talk about war and we talk about battles and death we should remember what we're talking about we're talking about a lot of pain a lot of suffering a lot of grief um and that's very well summed up in Kaura. You know, you stand out at that site of the camp and you just you shake your head that it ever, ever occurred, the scale of the death that went just horrific. 234 Japanese, five Australians. Never should have happened, should have been prevented. The Japanese, as I said, the Japanese shouldn't have done it. That was the first thing. But once they'd made the decision to do it, the Australians easily could have stopped it and they just didn't. They were just incapable, just complacent, just incapable of making the decisions that would have stopped it. This book never should have been written. We never, we never should have known this story because it never should have happened. This should not be a chapter of the Second World War that we're remembering. Um, it didn't happen in other camps. You know, they managed to keep a lid on it in other camps. So it never should have happened, but it did. So all we can do now is, as you say, what can we learn from it? And when you stand on that site, or particularly when you go to the cemetery and you see all those graves, Australian and Japanese, um, it does it does make you think, and it does, as you say, it makes you value. The life, you know, the grave of the ten-month-old baby is the one that I stand in front of, and you think that's a this person's in a war cemetery in Kara. It's yeah. an odd feeling, and then when you go to the Japanese garden, and that is a very peaceful place. It's designed to be peaceful, and it is, and it's very family friendly. It's dog friendly. You can take your dog there and walk around with your pet, which I took my dog there last time I was there, and it's a lovely place. And spending a couple of hours just doing the full lap of the whole thing and just contemplating. It's important. It's it's we can't do anything about the history. It's 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 a bleak chapter of the Second World War, but we can do a lot about the remembering. And it's um, I, I'm glad that Cowra has done such a good job of remembering because it's a really lovely place to visit. It's a great reflection too. You you really can reflect on what has occurred. And and so, can you tell us when your book is when it's published? Where can we where can we get a copy of your of your latest The Cowra Outbreak? Well, it's going to. It's being published in August, in time for the August twenty twenty two, in time for the anniversary, which is the fifth of August. So it'll be out then. It'll be in all good bookshops. So it'll be out there. And um, if people are interested in this and do want to join me, I am leading a tour uh, late in twenty twenty two out to Cara. I don't do the only, you, the tour you joined me on was the only one we've ever done to Cara. Um, so it's not a regular stop, but very occasionally we we head out there and and walk the ground. So in I think it's October we've got that scheduled for twenty twenty two. I'll be heading out there just for a weekend, just for a long weekend. Um, going to Canberra first to chat to some of my mates there at the War Memorial and learn a little bit more about Cowra, uh, and then heading over to Cowra and, and spending a couple of days walking those sites. So if anyone's listening to this and wants to join me, they can uh, certainly do that as well. It's um, it's going to be a great experience. But yeah, but the, but the book is out in August next year, and it's the end of a long journey for me. Well, really, I mean, a 47-year journey because it's been part of my entire life. So that's great that I finally got the chance to tell the story. Absolutely. And Matt, when it comes out, we'll, we'll definitely get you back on because this, this one was more to get you on to talk about the actual cow breakout. And, and next one that I do get you on, I, we'll, we'll dive into the guts of the book and we'll really, yeah, it'd be great to have you back on to talk about it. Mate, anytime. Love to. And just lastly, what are you doing now? Like now the book's done, what are you doing with yourself? That's a great question, mate. I only, today's, uh, today's Monday and I deliver the manuscript on Friday. So, uh, I've had a weekend to try and work that out. So, well, look, we're we're at the stage now where 
Battlefield Touring is back now, which is great. So in 2022, we're going to be taking people back to the battlefields, which I'm overjoyed about because I've missed walking the ground myself. I know you have, mate, and it's what I love more than anything else is taking people over there. So I'm delighted that we'll be going back to France and Gallipoli and Kokoda and all those places, Vietnam, Cowra, <laughs> all these places that are important to remember the Anzacs and we walk in the ground again. It's a good question, mate. That's going to keep me busy. I've got a baby on the way, so that's... From a personal level, I've got a, a busy 2022 coming up, but um, I'll write another book. It's just a question of uh, landing on a topic. So I had such a great experience writing this book. Had its challenges at times, but it's it's great to be able to tell a story as worthy of being told as this one. And so the question now is, what's the next story going to be? There's always another story, as you know. <laughs> it's, so it's a question of what uh, what story to tell next. <laughs> I know I've known you a long time, and it, this is tongue in cheek, but it could be gate latches on the Western Front. That that could be the next <laughs> into cemeteries. <laughs> You know me well. Adam's talking about I've, I've, every time we go to a cemetery on the Western Front, it seems like it, you get to these amazing cemeteries and they're beautiful and you pull up in the car outside, you go, wow, what a magnificent thing. And you see the beautiful rubble wall and the gleaming headstones and the cross of sacrifice and it's an amazing thing. And then you walk up and there's some ornate every iron time. gate. And every time then the whole thing comes crashing down because I just can't get every the bloody gate. thing open. Every gate on every cemetery on the Western Front is designed differently. And so Adam and I joked about how I'm going to do a book called Gate Latches on the Western Front, just talking about the variety of, of engineering feats that, that secure the gates. But uh, maybe that'll be the next project, mate. Who knows? Look out for it. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows, mate? But no, thank you for coming on and, and telling us about the Cower Outbreak. And I look forward to getting overseas again next year with you and walking the Western Front again. So Matt McLaughlin, thank you very much. Mate, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the podcast on whatever platform you get your podcasts. And if you feel like supporting us, you can now via our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash true blue history or buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash true blue history and check out our new website, true blue history. Dot com for more great content. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member. For a small monthly fee, you can subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.